Let's bring him in. It's John Feinstein joining us here on Iron Sports. John, thank you so much for joining us. Ira, my pleasure. Uh, not the best of circumstances, uh, but uh, it's good to talk to you again. Yes, I mean, certainly your thoughts about, I mean, we certainly have this uh, coronavirus and, and with the Masters, I mean, last week no one would have thought we'd be in a situation where the Final Four would be canceled and the Masters postponed to whenever. So your just thoughts about that. Well, I, I think I'm like everybody else, especially those of us who are sports fans or, or who in my case work in sports. Uh, it's very sad. It's very disappointing. Uh, you guys were just talking about Mike Isolino's Robert Morris team. I mean, they, they, they beat a very good St. Francis team in the championship game of the NEC, and, and the kids I know were looking forward to Sunday, brackets going up, seeing their name go up against, no doubt, a, a big-name team, and they don't get to do that. And, and none of the kids, for, for kids like who play at Robert Morris, who play at Hofstra, who play at, at Vermont or Hartford, who were supposed to play the America East Championship game, Boston University, those were the kind of, of players, coaches, teams I wrote about in the back roads to March, for whom getting to the NCAA tournament is almost certainly going to be the pinnacle of their basketball careers, because most aren't going to play in the NBA. A few may play minor league basketball or European uh, play overseas, but for most, the idea of seeing their name go up on Selection Sunday and getting to walk out onto the court and knowing they have a chance if they get in. They have a chance. History proves that. UMBC proved that two years ago. Loyola proved it when they went to the Final Four two years ago. That's the pinnacle for these kids, and now none of them get the chance to play, and I think that's very sad. And we're going to get into your book, The Backroads of March. I read it this weekend. It was tremendous. And I just said, I don't know if you heard what I said, but uh, I think you wrote 42 books. So if you're sitting at home for the next few weeks and have nothing else to do, <laughs> every one of your book is fantastic. And also, I think, I, I, I actually, one of my friends said, look, I, I, I'd like to watch sports with my son. And that's the bonding experience. I said, well, read a book with him. And then, I, and then also, like, maybe give, if you can't visit your grandfather, have, like, the grandfather read the book at the same time the son or the, the daughters, the granddaughters reading the book. Because you have a lot of books, like we had you on for the Prodigy about uh, that would be, was a perfect book for for young adults to read with with an adult. Well, I appreciate that, Ira, because uh, as I have written thirteen books that are uh, skewed to young adults, kids ten, twelve, and up. The Prodigy is sort of a tweener. Kids can certainly read it, uh, but a lot of adults told me they loved it. It set at the Masters. It's fiction, um, but there are a lot of real people who appear in it, as in all of my. Uh, fiction, real people appear, and I think it gives you uh, a, quite a view of what it's really like to be at the Masters, because I've covered it 29 times, uh, and uh, I like the way you think. People are going to have a lot more time to read in the next couple of months, so um, start with the back roads to March and work your way back. <laughs> That's good. Um, and before we get into the talk about Backroads to March, because it was truly a phenomenal book. I loved it. Uh, but I want to just, and I saw you at the Honda Classic. You know how big the Honda Classic here is in West Palm Beach and Ken Kennedy's work on it. And, and I was there and I covered it. I was giving, doing live reports. Just your impressions about this year's Honda Classic and, and just the, in general. Well, I, I think Ken Kennerly has done an amazing job building the Honda from what was sort of the skip-over event on, on the old Florida swing. People would go play Doral, then they'd skip the Honda, then they'd play Bay Hill, and then they'd play the players. But when they moved the Honda to PGA National, which is a terrific golf course, and put Ken in charge, it completely changed the profile of the tournament. Uh, they began to get the big names. The, the schedule change, jumping Mexico in front of them, has not helped. But as you know, Ira, Rory McIlroy has won the tournament. Tiger Woods has come and played. 
uh, on a number of occasions. Uh, and, and really, they, they've had just about every one of the top players in the world come there at one time or another. The field wasn't quite as strong this year, uh, but it was still a very good field. Uh, I felt for Tommy Fleetwood and the way his tournament ended, hitting his second shot in the water at 18. He says he didn't hear that loud screaming, uh, put, it, put it in the hole or whatever he said, in the middle of his backswing when he hit it in the water, but I, I still have to believe that affected him. Sun J.M. was certainly a worthy champion, great young player, only 21 years old. Um, but that, that finishing hole is, is a tremendous finishing hole because, as we found out, it's such a risk-reward type of hole. So, again, we're talking to John Feinstein, his author of The Back Roads of March. It's available in Doubleday. Um, you can, it's available by audiobook and also by the print edition. So uh, you decided to spend an entire year, and if you were going to spend it, people would think if you were going to spend a year talking about you know, going to every college basketball game, you got Duke, Carolina, and Indiana, someone, or whatever, but you chose to cover the small schools, the schools with the, from the one-bid conferences, and, and, and bring to light their stories. Yeah, and you know, I, I've, I've, I've done both kinds of, of books. I, I spent a year with Bob Knight when I did Season on the Brink. I did a book on ACC basketball years ago. But some of the books that I've enjoyed the most involve athletes and coaches who aren't in the spotlight. I did a book on the Army-Navy football rivalry, A Civil War, which a lot of people still think is my best book and certainly was up there for me personally. Uh, I did a book on Patriot League basketball. I did a book on PGA Tour qualifying school. So I, I like to go look for stories that no one else is looking for. I, I get great pleasure out of having someone say to me after reading a book or a story that I've written, wow, I never knew that. If you write about Tiger Woods, if you write about Mike Krzyzewski or Roy Williams or, or any of the, the stars uh, who are on ESPN every night, you're not likely to have someone come up and say, gee, I never knew Zion Williamson was really good. <laughs> uh, but if you're writing about kids from Army and Campbell and Longwood and, and uh, Harvard, you are very likely to have people come up and say, geez, I never knew that. And that gives me great pleasure. And the response to this book it's only been out two weeks, but the response to this book has been tremendous. The reviews have been great. The sales have been terrific. I, I, I was concerned, obviously, for selfish reasons that not having a tournament would hurt the sales. But it seems like a lot of people are doing what you suggested, ordering online and getting the book to read uh, to fill some of the void, at least, uh, that they're going to feel the next couple of weeks. And some one of the one of the coaches. I mean, we're we've gone through this the scandal supposedly you know in the past year. But there's so many of the 300 and some college basketball coaches. The vast majority of them are just such great men and working so hard to help their players. And one of those play one of those coaches you brought to light was Fran Dunphy. He's, he, I worked for Fran when I was at the University of Pennsylvania. He's been on this show. Uh, talk a little about Fran Dunphy. And, and I know you talked about about three of his games uh, during there, but especially the time when they gave him a four minute stand ovation at the his final game against Drexel at the Palestra his final game in the Palestra you're right um, it, you know you know dump so he's one of those special people I've been fortunate to know for a long time dating back to his his days coaching at Penn coached at Penn for 17 years coached at Temple for 13 won 580 games there's no questioning what a great coach he he was he just retired last year um, but beyond that, he's a better person. He, he's generous. He never forgets anybody. Uh, he takes care of his players long after they're done playing for him. Um, he's, he's, he, I don't want to say he's unique because unique is one of a kind, but he's pretty darn close to it. 
and the story you're talking about took place in the palestra last uh, December 22nd of last season. Uh, they were playing Drexel, and to the credit of Zach Spiker, the, the Drexel coach, he moved the game. It was their home game to the palestra because he knew it would be the last chance for Fran to coach in the palestra. He, he, he played there at LaSalle. He coached there at Penn. He coached many games there at Temple, too. And he, he actually played high school games there when he was a kid growing up outside Philadelphia. So it was a special day. And what they did was, you know, usually at a basketball game, you introduce the, the, the visiting coach and then you introduce the home coach. Well, they reversed it that day. They introduced Zach Spiker first. And then the PA announcer said, uh, and, and please welcome coaching his last game in the palestra, Mr. Big Five, because that's what they call Fran, because he played at LaSalle, coached at Penn, coached at Temple, got a graduate degree at Villanova. I've told him for years he needs to do something at St. Joseph's <laughs> just to make it a clean sweep. And they said, Mr. Big Five, Temple coach Fran Dunphy. And everybody in the place, the place was sold out, stood and applauded and applauded and applauded. Uh, Dunph was trying to get him to stop, kept saying thank you and putting his hands down to get people to stop. And they just wouldn't stop because they wanted to show their appreciation for not only what a terrific coach he's been, but also the kind of person that he is. And then you talked about, for, you went to Lafayette for a game and talked to Fran O'Hanlon, someone who was on Coach Duffy's staff, and I know, know Coach right. O'Hanlon. And you have one of the greatest lines. You wrote the, from the chorus line, all I need is the music, a mirror, and a place to dance. And you, when you looked at Fran O'Hanlon, you said, all O'Hanlon needs is a team, a gym, and a place to compete. I just love that line that you had. Well, thank you. Um, I've only seen a chorus line about 14 times. Um, my dad told me I had to go see it years ago. And uh, he was he was he was clearly right, and that that's dumb. Uh, excuse me, that that's Fran. Um, he loves to coach. He's 71. He's still going strong. Lafayette won 19 games this season. Um, probably would have been in one of the secondary tournaments because uh, Boston University rep- would have represented the Patriot League uh, in postseason. He completely turned around the Lafayette program when he took over 24 years ago, uh, and. Uh, he, he's one of those guys. He, you, you've melt, met him. You dealt with him, Iris, so you know what I'm talking about. One of the things he and Dump have in common is they're both so self-deprecating. They both always, when they win, it's because of their players. When they win, lose, it's because of their coaching. And that's Dump. Uh, that's also Fran. And, I, you know, I, years ago I did a book on Patriot League basketball, and actually Lafayette won the league championship that year. Uh, and that's when I got to know Dump. Uh, I keep saying Dump. I, oh, Fran. They're both friends. That's where I get confused. Um, more than 20 years ago, and I'm glad he's still coaching, and I'm glad I still get to go to games up there at Lafayette. And then you went back to some small schools that have big name coaches. You had you talked to, to Tubby Smith, who was a yep. four national championship winner at Kentucky at High Point College, and Jim Calhoun, three time championship winner from Connecticut, coaching at Division Three St. Joseph's. And that was just it was. I loved how you wove their stories in the book in terms of they're not getting the chartered flights, they're riding the buses, and but they have all the rings and the titles and everything. Yeah, you know, let me start with with Jim, who. Jim and Tubby are both examples of, of a theory I've always had. Coaches coach. You, even when they retire, they still want to coach. They miss it. 
Uh, Dean Smith told Roy Williams years ago, don't retire too young, I retire too young. He kind of got driven out of the game uh, by spoiled players who weren't any fun to coach, and that was a shame. But uh, Tubby Smith, as you mentioned, won the national championship at Kentucky. Um, and uh, the, uh, well, let me talk about Calhoun first. Jim won three national championships at UConn and had to retire because he, he had a second cancer scare. He has since had two more, believe it or not, and is still going strong at 77. But a friend of his called to say, um, we're starting a men's basketball program at the University of St. Joseph's. This is West Hartford, Connecticut, not Philadelphia, Division Three <laughs> school, as you mentioned. Who should I hire to coach? And Jim said, hire me, because he wanted to come back and coach. He didn't care where it was. Like with Fran O'Hanlon, he wanted a gym. He wanted a place to compete and kids to coach. And so he took the job at 76. And when I went up there, I got to tell you, Ira, he was as intense and crazy playing and coaching in front of 500 people in the gym at the University of St. Joseph's as he had been coaching in front of 80,000 people in Final Fours in the past. And uh, they, they, St. Joseph's lost that night on a play similar to the one you might remember when they threw a length of the court pass from Scott Burrell, George yes. beat Clemson in the round of 16 way back in 1990. And the opponent that night, Johnson and Wales, ran an almost identical play and hit a shot to send the game into a second overtime. And after they came in the locker room, I said, well, I guess you know how Cliff Ellis felt 30 years ago now. <laughs> and Jim just looked at me and he said, you, you think this is funny? Do you really think this is funny? I don't find this funny at all. And I realized, wow, I mean, he's as into this as he ever has been, which I should have known during the game because he was screaming at the refs for 50 minutes since it was two overtimes. Uh, Tubby, a little bit different. I don't want to say mellow. Coaches are, are never mellow, but not quite as intense as Jim. But coaching at his alma mater after winning a national championship. And I saw his team play at Longwood which is in Farmville, Virginia. And if you're like most people, Ira, you have no idea where Farmville, Virginia is. Um, the way I describe it is 60 miles west of Richmond and two miles east of the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and the coach at, 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 at Longwood is a guy named Griff Aldrich, who uh, was a lawyer. He was a big-time lawyer. He played Division three basketball, went to law school, and practiced law for 20 years and was making $800,000 a year. But he still had the passion for basketball. So when his college roommate, Ryan Odom, got hired at UMBC, and you, of course, remember UMBC beating Virginia in arguably the most stunning upset in NCAA tournament history, a 16 beating a 1 for the first time ever, he called Ryan and said, you know what, I'd like to coach. I, I really would. And Ryan said, you can come work for me. I can pay you $32,000 a year which was a pay cut of about $770,000, but he took it, moved his wife, three kids from Houston to Baltimore. They're part of the upset two years later against Virginia, and he gets hired to coach Longwood in large part because the president of Longwood was at Virginia Law School at the same time that Griff was at Virginia Law School. So when I went down to see them play High Point, Griff made the comment to me that day, this is one of the greatest coaching matchups ever, Tubby, with 606 wins and a national title, and me with 12 wins. <laughs> and during the game, my wife sent me a text saying, I forget where you are tonight, what time will you be home? And I texted back and I said, I'm in Farmville, Virginia, I'll be home about midnight. And she texted me back and said, you are having an affair. There's no such place as Farmville, Virginia. So the title of that chapter is, Yes, Christine, There is a Farmville. And your book, you, you really delve into some of the problems that these one-bid leagues have. 
um, and also the coaches and the pressures that come with it um, that have it. And, and a lot of it you, it, you put the blame a lot on their athletic directors and presidents. A lot of these schools were in like the right conferences, but then they moved to the Conference USA and the Atlantic 10, which are which teams from like C to, C to signing C instead of just being like, like George Mason, which is all the teams that they can drive to. And you mentioned how it's just difficult when a coach takes a team and suddenly they're moving to a different conference and then it's, then it's messed up. And then the expectations change. You mentioned Phil Martelli at St. Joe's in terms of how he got fired being such a great coach and you know for all those years at St. Joseph's. Yeah, it was ridiculous that Phil got fired. It was ridiculous that Tony Shaver got fired at William & Mary. He did one of the best coaching jobs ever, uh, getting them to be a, a consistent contender in, in the uh, CAA when they were one of the worst teams in the country when he got there. He, by the way, coached Ryan Odom and Griff Aldridge at Hampton Sydney, so there's a connection there. But uh, you're right, you know, a lot of these schools make moves from one conference to another. Often it's because of football. Old Dominion moved from the CAA, which was a perfect conference for them geographically and competitively, uh, to Conference USA, which is totally imperfect for them geographically and competitively because they wanted to play uh, at the FBS football level. Um, there are a number of schools that, that have done that, move from one conference to another. Um, the best example or worst example, depending on your point of view, is Fordham. It's a great academic school, belonged, was doing very well in the Patriot League. They won the Patriot League and went to the NCAAs in 1991. And then their leadership had the brilliant idea, let's go in the Atlantic 10, which is one of the seven or eight most competitive conferences in the country. Had the number two ranked team in the country in Dayton this year. They've had final four teams. They usually get anywhere from three to five bids. Well, it's nice to dream. But in the 30 years, almost 30 years since Fordham went to the Atlantic 10, they've never come close to the NCAA tournament. They've gone through one coach. Very good coaches have come and gone. Bob Hill coached there. Derek Wittenberg coached there. Tom Pacora coached there. I happen to think they, they've had very good coaches. Jeff Neubauer, their current coach, I think is a very good coach. But there's a good chance he's going to get fired because his team was 2-16, and 3-16. and 16. They won their first game in the conference tournament before it got shut down. Um, and he's probably going to get fired, and I think he's a good coach. And you hate to see that happen to coaches because of things that are completely out of their control. Right. And uh, you went to Duke. Jay Billis went to Duke, and I also went to Duke Law School. But Jay has sort of a different so opinion. Jay, by the way. Yeah, Jay, Jay went to Duke, of course. And one, one of the three of us didn't go to law school. So <laughs> which one doesn't belong and why? <laughs> that's, that's, I, actually, I graduated with Jay, and Jay played. There was a school play, and Jay played me in the school play. I was pretty infamous in law school, and he actually played me as, like, to tell the truth in the school play. But, uh -huh. the, but Jay's opinion is... If you're if you're a major power school, you got to get in. Like put put them all in. That the one and done right. the, the 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 single bid leagues. That's all she get is, is one is one bid. And when you read your book, you're like, well, you look at teams like uh, Loyola of Chicago would have never got in the tournament if they didn't win their their conference tournament Correct. in 2019. Only Belmont and Nevada even got in. And there were other schools like you know, Hofstra had 27 wins, Lipscomb 29, Furman with all their wins. And it's just this problem with the, the tournament where I I mean I would rather see these very good teams in rather than these middling have, have losing records in their conference right well first of all let me say this jay read read the book as you may know and tweeted very generously about it so <laughs> he, he he seemed to like it and, and that that was very very kind of him but we disagree on this point and i think you just hit the nail on the head i believe there should be a rule that if you can't at least finish 500 in your conference 
you don't play in the NCAA tournament. And people will say, well, but look at the Big Ten this year. There were so many good teams, or some years in the ACC when there were so many good teams. Yeah, but all those teams have the built-in advantages of money, TV exposure, facilities, the ability to, to schedule guarantee games at home where they're almost certainly going to win those games and pad their record. Now, it doesn't always happen. You know, there are occasional upsets where Stephen F. Austin this year going in and beating Duke, but that was their first non-conference loss at home in 20 years. So if you're going to have all those advantages, if you're going to play in a conference that gives you all of that, that gives you a conference tournament, that you're part of a TV contract that feeds you money, then you darn well better be able to finish 500 in your league if you want to qualify for the NCAA tournament. I don't think we need the ninth, 10th, 11th place teams from the Big Ten or from the ACC in some years or the 7th or 8th place team from the Big East. You just named a bunch of teams that won a lot of games last year. Furman, Lipscomb, UNC Greensboro, Hofstra. And those teams, as Loyola of Chicago proves, proved, when they get a chance to play in the tournament, they often pull the upsets that make the tournament special. The one thing that separates the NCAA tournament from every other major sporting event is that David can beat Goliath. David can have his moment in the spotlight. VCU, Butler, Loyola Chicago, George Mason. Those teams made those tournaments special as opposed to a Final Four that consists of Michigan State and Duke and Kentucky and Wisconsin. I throw that out because that was the Final Four in 2015 as an example. Um, I mean, look, my alma mater won the national championship. I was happy for Mike Krzyzewski. But nevertheless, it wasn't special the way some of those other tournaments where the Cinderella's had their moment in the spotlight were. And, you know, in college football, George Mason, VCU, Loyola, Chicago, don't even play football, much less try to compete with the big boys. But in basketball, they have their chance. And we're talking to John Feinstein, the author of The Backroads to March by Double, Bay, Double Day Books. It's available. It's been available for two weeks. Must read if you love college basketball. It's about all the schools that probably aren't you're not familiar with, but that the stories are probably more interesting than the ones you're familiar with. Um, I, I like to. I had Bob Stoops on the show a few weeks, a few months ago, and one of his comments was, "He goes, the smartest decisions I made were the jobs I didn't take rather than the jobs I took. Whereas he was offered lots of jobs but never took them." And you. Really go into detail about these coaches and their decisions in terms of, like, even Porter Moser from Loyola. He was ready to go to St. John's, signed the paper, ready to go, but then decided not to go. Whereas Nate Oates of Buffalo decided to go down to Alabama. It's just like you went into their details and their and their thinking, and uh, just talk a little about these coaches and the pressure of should they take that next job? Like Steve Donahue goes from uh, Cornell to Boston College, and then maybe, but now he's at a great fit at Penn. In terms of their thinking, in terms of taking these jobs. Yeah, there, there's an old saying among coaches, sometimes you shouldn't run away from happiness. <laughs> and those are examples you're, exciting that, that you're citing that are perfect examples. Uh, Porter Moser, after he interviewed at St. John's last year, uh, sat on the plane going back to Chicago. He had told Mike Craig, the AD, uh, I'll let you know in 24 hours. And he wrote two letters, one, both to, to fans and alumni of Loyola. One saying, thanks for a great, great eight years. I've loved leading this program but it's time for me to take the next step. The other one was, hey, I've talked to St. John's. I was very impressed with the place, but Loyola is my home. I, I, I feel I belong here. And he said when he finished that letter, 
he felt better. That was the letter he wanted to, to, to put out to the public. He, want, he felt home at Loyola. He, they'd upgraded the facilities. They'd made all the progress that the program has made to be a Final Four team and a consistent winner. And he was like, okay, Madison Square Garden's great, and, and St. John's is in the Big East, but I love where I am. So why go someplace else that's unknown when I love where I am? Now, Nate Oates, had, who came from being six years ago, Nate Oates was a high school coach outside of, of Detroit, making $85,000 a year coaching and teaching and, and working summer camps total. And then Bobby, uh, Bobby Hurley hired him at the University of Buffalo. He knew him through recruiting one of his kids when he was at Rhode Island. And two years later, Bobby leaves, and boom, Nate Oates is the coach at Buffalo, went through a horrible cancer scare with his wife soon after getting the job, but kept the program not only afloat, but made it even better. Uh, they won NCAA tournament games, again, won bid league teams, winning tournaments. They beat Arizona, and then Bobby Hurley's Arizona State team the next year. Coincidental matchup, right? Um, and, and he had the program in, in a place it had never been. But then along come both UCLA and Alabama, offering him the chance to coach there for big money. And, and by then he was up to about $800,000 a year at Buffalo. Alabama was offering more than $3 million a year. <laughs> and interestingly, he called both Brad Stevens, who had taken Butler to two national championship games, and he called Mark Few, who's built the greatest mid-major program in history, except they're not a mid-major anymore. And if you want to get punched in the nose, Ira, walk up to Mark Few someday and say, hey, you've got a great mid-major program, and then duck, <laughs> because they're not mid-major anymore. But he said... Could, he said to few, could, could I build a Gonzaga-type program here? And, and Mark Few said, I doubt it because you have Division I football. And any school that has Division I football, the priority is always going to be football in terms of money spent and facilities and things like that. He also spoke to Brad Stevens who said, the problem you're going to have, even if they up you to, say, a million dollars a year, you're going to walk around knowing you are by far the highest paid person on the campus and it's going to feel funny. <laughs> and at that point he felt, you know what, I've done what I could do here. It's time to move on. And I spoke to him not long after he got to Alabama and he said to me, John, I just got my first paycheck and they pay monthly in the state of Alabama. He said, it's for more money after taxes than I ever made when I was coaching in high school. This is mind boggling. And I think Nate Oates will do very well at Alabama because he's a terrific basketball coach. Well, considering the last two games I saw this year would be in the, it would be in the Robert Morris win over St. Francis last Tuesday, and then I saw three weeks ago uh, Gonzaga at Pepperdine in that small gy- uh, small gym they have at Malibu, so that was pretty I exciting. I love that gym, by the way, especially because yeah. you walk outside and you look right at the beach. <laughs> totally, and, it's, and, and you can sit for like, it's a dead center for like 20 bucks, so it was great <laughs> for that game. But for one last story I want you to say is I loved your, your description of the Army Duke, the Army team playing the Zion Williamson and, and, and yeah. how Army, because there you have the classic Army, the soldiers, these guys are going to be the generals of our armies against the Zions. I mean, totally two different types of people. And then I, the one line you had I loved, I'm going to probably walk over your statement, is that when Coach K once threatened his team, he said, like, if you don't practice hard enough, you're going to start to fly commercial. So yeah. Well, it's funny because I was there the day that happened. It was when I was doing my ACC book. And I quoted that line in the book. And my friend Dan Dockich actually posted it on Twitter. Um, I think today, saying that, that it's one of the greatest lines he's ever heard um, anywhere because it so symbolizes what big-time college basketball has become. But this was, as you said, a bunch of guys who were going to be in the Army when they graduated uh, going to play in one of the great 
college basketball cathedrals, Cameron Indoor Stadium, and for all of them, it was a great thrill. Even their second-leading scorer, Jordan Fox, who grew up in Kentucky, hating Duke, had as as his uh, uh, picture on his cell phone, you know, his his uh, you know first picture you see, uh, Mike Shashevsky hugging him after the game, and he said, "I never thought I'd want to be hugged by Coach K, but wow, that was a great <laughs> moment in my life." And they went in and they competed like crazy. And there was a, a point in the first half where a little guard from Philadelphia named Tommy Funk, and you know how good those Philly Catholic League guards are, Ira, and uh, stole the ball first from Zion Williamson and, 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 and then from... from um, uh, R.J. Barrett. Yes, and, and on back-to-back plays. And Krzyzewski was so upset he had to call timeout because the lead had suddenly gone from six to two. And in that timeout, Jimmy Allen turned to me and he said, who would have thought that he would have called the first timeout in this game? <laughs> and it was 48-42 at halftime. They hung in until the last 10 minutes. And Krzyzewski, after the game, what he said to Jimmy Allen was, I'm so proud of, of your guys. I'm so proud of them. Because, obviously, he's an Army grad. And while he wanted his team to play well, he could also recognize the incredible effort that those kids put in that day. Well, John, I really, I know you've been busy uh, promoting the book, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, it's The Backroads to March by Doubleday. Double um, as I said earlier in the show, he would have so many different books for young adults and nonfiction, fiction books in this time when people are stuck at their house for four weeks or five weeks or whatever it's going to be. Start reading books, read books with your children, um, and John's books are some of the best books. I, I mean, by far the best books on sports you have. So I appreciate you coming on the show. Ira, thanks for having me, and congratulate Coach Isolino for me when you get him on.